Beloved, perhaps you have seen before the Peanuts cartoon, a single frame with Linus, where the caption says, I love mankind, it's just people that I can't stand. That's kind of a far cry from when he quoted from the birth narrative in Luke chapter 1 in the Christmas special. Um, Not that when I attribute things to a fictional character, how we would even try to sort through that. I actually had a friend of mine who was a pastor. He's not a pastor anymore. He made the statement, I love preaching. I just don't really like people. Um, He actually did end up finding kind of a niche where he does preach, but not in uh, his church. And he even teaches some sessions on preaching. Beloved, the point is this. People are imperfect. We as a community at Santan Bible Church, we are an imperfect community. We are a not complete community. But We are a growing community. We are an on-the-way community, always growing, advancing, never retreating, Lord willing. Beloved, we are people on a pilgrimage to perfection, a perfection on the other side of eternity, perfection on the other side of glory. And what we have in our text this morning in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 6 through 13, as Paul finishes this opening section of this letter, before he gets into the latter two chapters in this great book where he deals with some different issues, both morally and doctrinally, Paul wraps up this opening section with a tremendous word of encouragement and exhortation around the beauty of of the body of Christ, and the power of the body of Christ. Beloved, listen as I read the passage we have before us here, providentially from the Lord. This is 1 Thessalonians 3 and verse 6. But now that Timothy has come to us from you, and has brought us good news of your faith and love, and that you always think kindly of us, longing to see us just as we also long to see you, For this reason, brethren, in all our distress and affliction, we were comforted about you through your faith. For now we really live, if you stand firm in the Lord. For what thanks could we render to God for you in return for all the joy with which we rejoice before our God on your account. As we night and day keep praying most earnestly that we may see your face and may complete what is lacking in your faith. Now, may our God and Father himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you. And may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all men, just as we also do for you, so that he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Beloved, this is the word of God that's been read in your hearing. Please attend to it as such. Now, just as we would seek to unpack the riches that God has for all his children, he has for us here this morning in this text, we really have a simple twofold outline. Paul is thankful for the present, and he is prayerful for the future. And the intent, the timeless intent that God would have for any of his children through this is that we would embrace more earnestly the blessing of the fellowship of the body, that we would not seek to retreat and be shut up in the solitude of our own heart, but we would avail ourselves of the blessing God has given us in the local body, and that we would seek prayerfully to be a blessing to others as well. 
that we would have an even greater understanding of, again, how beautiful is the body of Christ and how powerful is the body of Christ. So let's take a look at this first movement that we have in our text, namely that Paul is thankful for the present. And what we see here is there are two graces that are manifest in the lives of the Thessalonian believers for which Paul is thankful. Their evident faith and their enduring faith. The first grace in the first two verses for which Paul is thankful is the evident faith of the Thessalonian believers. And this is about the fruit Now, you may remember in the Gospels, it records where Jesus gave the parable of the soils. There were four soils. There was a rocky soil. There was a thorny soil. There was a shallow soil, and there was good soil. And the good soil in the teaching of the Lord is, of course, representative of true believers. And the good soil produces fruit. It's captured in Luke chapter 8, verse 15, where Jesus said, the seed in the good soil bears fruit with perseverance, end quote. Now, when we think about the fruit, when we think about the fruit of the Holy Spirit, for example, Galatians chapter 5, we can't earn our salvation by fruit, but fruit is evidence of our salvation. And that is what Paul is bringing out when he talks about the evident faith of the Thessalonians. Verse 6, look at how it begins. He says, but now that Timothy has come to us from you. And the grammar there indicates that very shortly after Timothy came to Paul and gave the good reports, very shortly after he received this good news, he wrote this letter back to them. And we need to remember that as we've been walking through this history, even though it was a costly sacrifice for the apostle Paul to send Timothy, because Silas, he sent Timothy to Thessalonica, he shortly thereafter sent Silas to Philippi. Even though it was a very costly sacrifice, Timothy knew that it was right, and his heart realized that it was right to send Timothy back to the church in Thessalonica to strengthen their faith and to examine their faith. He was sent back, in a sense, as a fruit inspector. Because Paul, in one sense, feared the worst. But when Timothy came back, he heard the best. And that is what gives him this great joy. So, Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us good news of your faith and love. Brought us good news. Euangelizo. Evangelize. This is the gospel. This is the only occurrence in the New Testament, or maybe one of two, where this word is used rather than its normative use of preaching the gospel of Christ to talk about bringing good news in a generic sense. But even though this is in more of a generic sense, this is still connected to the gospel of Christ. Now we can think of, from a chronological standpoint, in the life of Christ, really the first appearance of it is in Luke chapter 1 at the birth narrative, the birth announcement of Christ, where the gay angel Gabriel, Luke 1.19, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. That is the gospel message that Gabriel brought at the birth announcement of Christ. In a sense, we could think of that as the beginning of the gospel. And if we think of it that way for a moment, in a certain sense, we can look at 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 6, as the end of the gospel. The end in the sense of the product of the gospel. 
the product, the result. And what he is saying here is that whereas the announcement in Luke 1, verse 19, is the pathway to salvation, here the Apostle Paul brings out the back end. That was the front end. This is the back end, which is the product of salvation. And in a very real sense, what God says here is that the good news of the converts in Thessalonica, the good news of the fruit being born in the children of God is very much like the good news gospel of Christ. And bottom line, this God-forged faith, this faith and love, this couplet that is at the center of this good news, this God-forged faith feeds our minds and stirs our heart. Faith and love. And there is overlap between faith and in love. In one sense, there is a greater accent of faith towards God and love towards man. Uh, the faith is more towards the internal, and the love is more towards the external. In the one, it is more about belief. The other is more about behavior, but it is not a strict division. There is overlap, and this is faith that works, love that labors. This is Another demonstration of even how the apostle opened up the letter. Remember back in chapter 1, verse 3. Actually, we'll do verse 2 and 3. Paul said, We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. So this is faith that works. This is love that labors. John Calvin in describing this couplet of faith and love, said it is the sum total of godliness. And that was at the center of this good report that Paul received. And as a result of that good report, where out of the, the despair, or maybe not despair, that's not the right word, out of the concern, the deep concern and even anguish that he had in his heart, not knowing was taking place in the lives of his beloved Thessalonians, when he received this good news, the apostle was relieved. He was thankful and he was joyful over this gospel report. And this is very similar to the news and the concern that parents have. Remember, earlier in the letter, Paul gave the analogy of a godly shepherd is like a nursing mother or a caring father. And it has been well said that if you're a parent with grown children out of your house, you are never happier than your least happy child. And to extend the simile to go to another one, it's kind of like a raft that rises and lowers on the rising and the ebbing of the tide. A parent's love is a pastor's love. John Stott said this, The language of parents who are separated from their children, who miss them dreadfully, and are profoundly anxious when they have had no recent news of them, pastoral love is parental love. That is its quality, end quote. And again, the apostle had likened himself to a nursing mother, a caring father, even back in chapter 2, verse 17, when he talked about being reft, being bereft from them, he was like a one who was orphaned from his beloved children. And that is what brings out this great, passionate love that he expresses here. Now look at the rest of verse 6. He says, and that you always think kindly of us, this good report is continuing, that you always think kindly of us, longing to see us, just as we also long to see you. 
You may remember back in chapter 2, verse 17, he talked about this great, almost burning desire, this epithumeia, that he had to see them. Here, it's epipatheo. It's the same kind of desire, the same kind of longing. Uh, in Philippians 1, 8, Paul wrote, God is my witness how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. He writes, that was at a corporate level, he writes at a personal level to Timothy. In 2 Timothy 2, 4, Paul describes himself as longing to see you. But what we have here in our passage, in our verse here, is he is joyed because he has this great desire, this great longing to see them, and what a joy it was to his heart when he heard that they also were longing to see him. And then in verse 6, or excuse me, verse 7, this is why he continues. He says, for this reason, brethren, in all our distress and affliction, in all our distress and affliction, distress is the choking anguish. Uh, affliction is the crushing trouble. Uh, these same two words are joined together in the Greek translation of Job 15.24, where the wicked man has distress and anguish terrify him. They overpower him like a king ready for the attack. So the wicked man described in Job is overpowered by this distress and affliction. But the distinction here is this. The apostle Paul, the godly man, the righteous woman, the child of God is not overpowered by this distress and affliction because Jesus Christ is the one who is on our side, most importantly, and at the human level, the comfort and the encouragement and the strengthening of brothers and sisters in Christ make it such that we are not overpowered by these. And so Paul and the Thessalonians stood shoulder to shoulder together in this costly service and this painful suffering so that they are not overpowered by the choking anguish nor the crushing trouble. And beloved, understand this. The whole dynamic of cultural Christianity, cultural Christianity goes away when Christians are under attack. It doesn't stand the test of time. But for the Thessalonian believers, in all their distress and in all their affliction, and in Paul's distress and affliction, he says, we were comforted about you through your faith. Because what was his great concern? You see, the Apostle Paul knew that professed faith is perilous until proven. Professed faith is perilous until proven. And what is the greatest testing ground for professed faith? It is distress and affliction. You see, it's, easy, it's, it's very easy to fake fruit when everything is going your way. But genuine saving faith survives the rigors of testing and produces fruit. Not, again, to earn our salvation, but to confirm our salvation, and even more importantly, to glorify our Lord and Savior. And what does this look like in Santan Bible Church? What does this dynamic look like? I mean, we're not a bunch of fruit inspectors going around trying to find rotten fruit that we can throw in the trash can. No, we, we look for good fruit that we can encourage and nourish and, and blossom. So that is the evident faith. That is the first grace in the life of the Thessalonians for which the Apostle Paul is th thankful. The second grace is after their evident faith is their enduring faith. He heard the report that their faith had endured Satan's temptations and the enemy's 
assaults. And the power of faith comforts, which we just saw, and here now it energizes. Look at verse 8. He says, for now we really live if you stand firm in the Lord, or since you stand firm in the Lord. And stand firm, that's a military term. It was the kind of command that a centurion, for example, would give to his troops when they're on the verge of battle. And this is the beginning of what Paul will have in many of his epistles describing spiritual warfare. This is the kind of language, of course, that he talks about in Ephesians chapter 6 with the armor, putting on the armor of God in this holy war. And it's the same kind of dynamic that he will use elsewhere in his letters. Martin Lloyd-Jones on this topic said this, You can't read a single New Testament epistle without finding in it an exhortation to courage, to strength, and to fortitude, an exhortation to stand and fight. No one can read the New Testament without getting the impression the Christian church is a kind of army involved in a great contest, a test of endurance, a striving for a prize from the enemies, end quote. Uh, Paul will hearken something very similar. when he, So he wrote 1 Thessalonians 3 to the mature church, even though they were young in Thessalonica. He will write to the immature church in Corinth a couple years later, 1 Corinthians 16, verse 13. He will close that letter to them with this exhortation. Be on the alert. Stand firm. Same word, in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. And beloved, Understand this, so Paul is in Corinth writing this letter to the church in Thessalonica on his second missionary journey. He has seen many, many, many people profess faith and not stand firm. He's seen many who didn't stand in the battle, but who rather were slain in the battle, spiritually speaking, metaphorically speaking. But the Thessalonians had faced the enemy. They had refused to retreat. They were a unified front of courageous men and women that brings comfort and energizing power to the Apostle Paul in his ministry. And understand this, very, very important. They were not men and women standing in their own strength. What's the qualifier? They're standing firm in the Lord. That is always the qualifier. That is the source of strength. That is the only source of strength, the only source of hope, the only source of true joy. And so, as a result, Paul is flooded with thanksgiving and joy. Look at verse 9. He gives another rhetorical question as he had done earlier. He says, he writes, for what thanks can we render to God for you in return for all the joy with which we rejoice before our God on your account? Um, Paul, uh, the Jew, even though he's writing to a, a bunch of Gentiles primarily, he can't help but use a Hebrew literary characteristic, this double zap of rejoicing with joy to drive home, to try to give the picture of the exuding joy and thankfulness that he has as a result of this report. And it's nothing new. It's similar to what he will say elsewhere. And even this question, this question which is really, it's, not a, it's, it's a rhetorical question, but it's not just a rhetorical question, meaning a question that you don't expect an answer, but it's describing an impossible scenario. It's the same kind of dynamic the psalmist used when he wrote Psalm 116, verse 
12, what shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits towards me? You see, the Apostle Paul understood very well theologically there's absolutely nothing he or any of us could ever do to pay back the Lord for the infinite blessing and grace and mercy that he heaps upon us. And so he uses this impossible scenario, this reduction to an absurdity, which, just on a side point, it's the same kind of tactic that the author of Hebrews used in Hebrews chapter 6, this impossible situation, but that is a side topic. The point here, beloved, back on task, is this Thessalonian church, even though they were young, they were not like young sapling trees that get bent over by all the gusts that come their way. Even though they were young in the faith, they were like mighty oaks that stand firm against the gale with evident faith that endures. Two graces that in their lives for which the Apostle Paul was very thankful. And just a closing exhortation, a closing application, beloved, God does not command us to invade. He doesn't command us to march into battle, extending different language from this spiritual warfare that we're in. He doesn't command us to conquer. He commands us to stand firm on the ground that has already been conquered by the Lord Jesus. Stand firm in the faith is God's command to you and to me. So, the Apostle Paul, the first movement is he is thankful for the present. We move now to the second movement. He is prayerful for the future. And what we have in verses 10 through 13, Paul has two prayer requests. He prays for in-person fellowship and he prays for increased love. First, he prays, his first prayer request is for in-person fellowship. You see, he wrote this letter, and Paul understands that a letter is very useful and very powerful. And he is, of course, I'm sure, prayerful for this letter to be a blessing to the Thessalonian believers. But he well understood that a letter is not a substitute for in-person fellowship. And if you will allow me, let me make an extended application here. Live streaming is a great blessing, but live streaming is not a substitute for in-person fellowship. Uh, Paul, again, was in anguish in his heart because he'd been orphaned away from the people whom he loved. He wasn't looking for an out. He was looking for a way back in. And verse 17, having been orphaned of you for a short while, we were all the more eager with great desire, passionate desire to see your face. Beloved, you and I as Christians, we among all people should be contact keepers rather than contact breakers. That is part of the dynamic of the blessing and even the responsibility in the body of Christ. Paul continues, verse 11, as we night and day keep praying most earnestly that we may see your face. Night and day, Paul had earlier described his work of ministry as night and day, both preaching and tent making. Now he adds praying to it. Now Paul was a multitasking man. He would make tents and he would pray. He would make tents and he would preach. He would preach and he would pray. This is a never-ending stream of prayer from the Apostle Paul. This is pray without ceasing. This is a heart, a continual heart, even as we're working, even as we're playing, maybe even as we're eating, that is a heart of thankfulness, a heart of going to the Lord, seeking for strength. 
It's a faithful prayer, and it's a fervent prayer. Uh, the words, two words you see there, most earnestly, this is a fascinating single word in the Greek. Uh, you may remember that if, in the Greek language, if you have a verb, if you want to intensify the verb, you can, you can put a, a suffix, a preposition. This is a double compound word. It's most earnest, immeasurably more than. This is the same kind of superlative, overarching, exceeding eruption of word that Paul uses this exact same one in Ephesians chapter 3 in describing the glory of Christ who is due all honor. Ephesians 3.20, Paul wrote, to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. That exceedingly abundantly beyond captures this one word that here the apostle Paul used to, uses to describe the level of fervency and earnestness and intensity that he is praying for in-person fellowship with his beloved Thessalonians. So Paul wanted to receive the blessing of in-person fellowship. He also wanted to give blessing. He continues on, and may complete what is lacking in your faith. So he prays that we may see your face and prays that we may complete what is lacking in your faith. Now, at that point there, we might think, well, all up to here, I mean, this is a young church, but it's a mature church. It's the only church that Paul wrote to where he cites them as an example. So what is he talking about? I mean, is he all of a sudden giving them an insult? No, no. You see, a sound person, a person that thinks right, wouldn't understand this as any kind of insult or anything of that sort. You see, spiritually sick people think they're healthy. Spiritually healthy people, we know that we're sick. We know how we have a new perfect inner man or inner woman, but it's trapped in this body of death. It's trapped in the flesh. And though our eternity is secure in Christ, we need to continue to engage in the battle. We need to continue to mortify and put to death the deeds of the flesh. And Paul says, I want to come back to you to receive and to give, to complete what is lacking in your faith. And what is lacking in their faith of these new believers? What do they need more of? They need more truth. They need more teaching. They need more understanding of who God is, who they are, who man is before salvation, who man or woman is after salvation, and how our Savior ties in with this. And so he wants to complete what is lacking, to knit together, to unite, to equip. Uh, the word complete was used to describe the setting of a broken bone, or it was used in the Gospels, the very same word, to describe the act when the disciples, the fishermen disciples, were mending or repairing torn nets that they fished with. That's what Paul wants to do. You see, Pastor Paul realizes that he must deal with the deficiencies that could lead to defection. Because even in this mature church, we know some of them were unruly. Some of them were faint-hearted. Some of them were weak, as he'll describe in chapter 5, verse 14. And so, what was lacking? Truth. More truth. More understanding. And Again, this is not an insult. This is part of all of our journeys, all of our pilgrimages. And there's a couple great illustrations. Do you remember in Acts chapter 19, Paul comes upon disciples of John the Baptist who were true disciples of Jesus Christ. And he asked the disciples, 
whether or not they were familiar with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And they, so, they said, no, we've never heard of that. So Paul had to give them instruction on that baptism. They needed more truth to complete what was lacking in their midst. Or we can go all the way back to the very beginning of the Bible. Remember, the earth was created, Genesis 1-2, tohu wabohu, formless and void. It wasn't wrong, it was incomplete. And days one through three, God gave order to what was formless. And then in days four through six, he filled in what was void. He completed what was lacking. That's the same kind of dynamic here that Pastor Paul has in his shepherd's heart when he tells the congregation that I want to complete what is lacking in your faith. John Calvin had these good words. He said, quote, from this it appears how necessary it is for us to give careful attention to doctrine. Teachers were not appointed merely with the view of leading men in the course of a single day or month to the faith of Christ, but for the purpose of perfecting the faith which had begun. So, end quote. So, beloved, truth supplies what is lacking in our faith. It produces working faith, laboring love, and enduring hope that Paul talked about back in chapter 1, verse 3. And, beloved, If you want a glimpse of my heart, my human-level goal in preaching is centered in mending the tares in your nets as you are fishermen on the sea of life. That is what we are all about, to mend the tares in your nets as fishermen in the sea of life. And then finally, Paul closes this section with a wish prayer centered in the will of God and the well-being of the people. Look at verse 11. He says, now may our God and Father himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you, guide our way to you. Uh, This word translated direct is always used in the context of prayer and praise. A great example is godly Zacharias. In Zacharias' song in Luke chapter 1, verse 79, after John was born and his mute tongue was loosed in Luke 1.79, Zacharias said that he is there to guide our feet into the way of peace, to direct our feet into the way of peace. Paul will give the same sentiment again to the Thessalonians in his second letter, chapter 3, verse 5. May the Lord direct, guide your hearts into the love of God, into the steadfastness of Christ. Now, pause here for a second. So this is Paul's prayer. This is his wishful prayer, his hopeful prayer on behalf of the Thessalonians. And remember the dynamic. He is going to the Lord. Remember back in chapter 2 verse 18, Paul had some level of discernment that he understood that Satan had thwarted their ability to come back to the Thessalonians. And what he is doing here is Paul is praying for God in his sovereignty to overrule Satan. He is saying, Lord, clear the way, what Satan had put to block our path, to impede our path back. Lord, you are sovereign. You are the one who rules the nations. Clear the way for us. May God make straight what Satan has made crooked. And by the way, just a side note here, notice that when Paul is concerned about Satan, he doesn't talk to Satan. He doesn't try to bind Satan. God goes or excuse me, Paul goes to the Lord because Paul understands that God is sovereign. God's plans remain on course, even if Satan may thwart this avenue or that avenue. God is the ruler of the nations. And beloved, 
wonder of wonders, understand this. Under the umbrella of this, your prayers, my prayers to the Lord are an assault on the kingdom of darkness in the economy of God for his glory, for our joy, and for the unfolding of his eternal plan of redemption in time and space. And just that there is a richness here that I want to camp on for just a moment. Notice that Paul calls the Father God, and he calls the Son Lord. Coming from the Old Testament, he calls the Father Elohim, he calls the Son Yahweh. And neither the New American Standard or the ESV, in my opinion, did a great job in uh, uh, translating this, because at the very beginning of the sentence, there is a singular pronoun, an emphatic pronoun. We see it there himself, but it describes both of them. We have two subjects, God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. The verb direct is in the singular. So hang with me here. What he is literally saying is, now himself, comma, our God and Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, comma, direct our path. What he's bringing out here is there are two persons at work, God the Father and God the Son. There's one essence. This is a powerful statement on the deity of Christ, even a snapshot of what we know to be the Trinity, the triune Godhead, when we bring the Spirit in. But that is what he has here. And by the way, this is the same kind of dynamic Paul will write in a couple years to the church in Corinth. 1 Corinthians 8, verse 6, Paul wrote, For us, there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. Two persons, one God. Three persons when we bring in the Holy Spirit. And by the way, this is Paul's prayer request. God will answer Paul's prayer the way Paul would hope he would answer in about five years. Towards the end of his third missionary journey, we'll read in Acts chapter 20, verses 1 through 3, that he does get to come back to Macedonia, does come back, get to come back to Thessalonica. But it takes five years. From our perspective, five years might seem a very long time, but to God, what is five years? So, he prayed for in-person fellowship. The second prayer request is increased love. We see this in verses 12 through 13. And we recognize, beloved, dear friend, love is the crowning jewel of Christianity. It's the queen of the other graces of God. Even if we think of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians, Galatians chapter 5, love is at the top of the list of the fruit of the spirits. Love God and love one another. That's really the first greatest commandment and the second greatest commandments. And all of the rest of the commands from the Lord, even in the Bible, really are an exposition of love God and love one another. That's why I look at verse 12. <clears throat> Paul writes, and may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another. Again, just this effusive, overflowing, extreme language of overflowing, spilling over. May you be so filled up with love that it just pours over as you love and show and demonstrate towards one another. Beloved, the Apostle Paul was not a stoic, heartless individual who only cared about doctrine. He had a heart that was saturated and filled with love, and he wants his beloved Thessalonian church to overflow with, and by the way, this is agape love. This is Jesus-like love. 
This is the kind of love that sacrifices for the other. This is the kind of agape, Jesus-like love that is absolutely independent of the attractiveness of the object that is loved. This is the kind of love that is coming from the inside of the one who is loving, with Jesus Christ as our perfect example. What Paul is saying here is, may your love be in ever-expanding circles and ever-deepening levels. The same kind of dynamic he will write to the sister church, the sister Macedonian church in Philippi, Philippians 1.9. Paul says, this I pray, that your love may abound still more. Or when he will later write to the church in Rome, Romans 12.19, be devoted to one another in brotherly love, outdoing one another in showing honor. And this is part of the family of God. Uh, John Chrysostom had this to say, and he was, Pastor Chrysostom, the golden mouth preacher, expositional preacher, was saying this, preaching this to his congregation. This is what he said. This one thing is the burden of my prayers, that I long for your advancement, that in which I strive is this, that I love you, that I'm wrapped up in you, that you are my all, father, mother, brethren, children, end quote. We understand, beloved, that Jesus Christ is all in all, but we are part of the body of Christ. We are part of the family of God. So at the human level, the spiritual family of God is what we are talking about here, the blessing of in-person fellowship, the blessing of overflowing, outpouring, pressed down, shaken over, love abounding in the body of Christ. And by the way, do you remember again, I think I mentioned it before, do you remember from where Paul is writing this? He's in Corinth. And he wrote this letter a couple years before he will write his first letter to the church in Corinth. And there's a chapter in there you might be familiar with, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I'll read verses uh, 4 through 7. 1 Corinthians 13, this is what Paul says about love. 1 Corinthians 13, 4. Love is patient. Love is kind. It's not jealous. Love does not brag. Love is not arrogant does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. Love is not provoked. Love does not take into account a wrong suffered. It doesn't rejoice in unrighteousness, but love rejoices with the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things. Love endures all things. The whole point is, perhaps Paul, when he was writing this letter to the church in Thessalonica, praying that their love would increase and abound overflow. He might have had that kind of 1 Corinthians 13 love in embryonic form in his brain, in his heart, that we see even right here. So Paul wants the ocean of their love to rise to its full height. Beloved, God wants the ocean of our love at Santan Bible Church to rise to its full height. And this central requirement, the central command of love is both a command and a gift. We obey the command to love by the power of the gift of love. And, beloved, God doesn't want us to just love much. He wants us to love well. That's why Peter wrote, 1 Peter 4, 8, above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Now, 
In the New Testament, at the human level, the prime objects of our love are always the one another. It's always the body of Christ. But it extends and reaches beyond the circles of even these confines here. Love is for the brotherhood and love is for the outsiders. Look at the beginning of verse 13. Or no, excuse me, that's the end of verse 12. I'm going to need to increase the font size on my little uh, verse numbers here. And for all men, just as we also do for you. I mean, the point here is this. Under the umbrella of God's common mercy, pagans show love to one another. But this dynamic of having this agape sacrificial love for men outside our boundaries, that can only come as a gift from God. This is part of even what is one of the most well-known and powerful parables of Jesus Christ, the Good Samaritan. Love for one another first and love for all men so that he may establish your hearts, that he may establish your hearts. The heart in Scripture doesn't mean merely the emotional part. It's a comprehensive term describing the whole man, the whole woman, our inner state, thoughts, feelings, and will, that he may establish your hearts through this outflowing love, strengthen, make them firm and stable. Beloved, the grace of God saves, the grace of God sustains, and the grace of God strengthens, so that our hearts would be continuing on, unblameable in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. This is the third reference to his coming. He ended what we have as chapter 1, chapter 2, and now chapter 3 with a reference to the future coming of Christ. He's coming personally and he will come visibly with all his saints, all his literal holy ones. Now, Paul loves this word hagias, holy ones, or saints here. He uses it again and again, repeatedly, uh, in nine of his epistles, always referring to believers. It's the same root word as the unblameable holiness that we just saw. And in fact, when we get in a few weeks to chapter 4, verse 14, he will then tell us also a description of who it is that is coming back with Christ. Chapter 4, verse 14 God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. But I want to finish with a few words on this aspect of unblameable holiness. Unblameable, free from fault or defect. It's not lacking anything. There's a consistency and an integrity. We are all a work in process on this side of glory, but by God's grace and mercy, what this means is no one can point a credible finger of blame. Accusations won't stick. Accusations will come against the child of God, but by God's grace and mercy, we can live in such a way that the accusations will not stick. And that's something that the psalmist wrote of. Psalm 119, verse 1. How blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. And what he says here is, unblameable in holiness. And what this means is this, this is not talking about aluminum siding that's covering rotting wood. This is unblameable holiness from the inside out. And in the context, it's the product of love that is first shed abroad in our hearts and then is increased and worked out in the fellowship of the church. Beloved, please join me as we go to the Lord in prayer. 
Lord God, we praise you and thank you, Lord. We thank you, Lord, for your great salvation, the great salvation that rescued us from the penalty of sin, the great salvation that rescues us from the power of sin as we are made more and more following in the footsteps of you and the great salvation that will save us from even the presence of sin when we are ushered into your kingdom forever and ever, seeing you as you truly are. God, be glorified in our midst. Help our love for one another to grow. Help it to blossom. Help our faith, our understanding of who you are, who we are, and our continual need for our Savior. Let it be more and more increasing for your glory and for our joy and for our witness to a lost and dying world. It's in your name and for your glory, Lord Jesus, that we pray. Amen.